0: Uh, yeah, so we are in Matthew uh, 19 again, uh, to the relief of many of you, uh, but you've got to review everything else again during discipleship hour, and it's all good for you. How's that? You guys probably don't want to see all that stuff, do you? How's that? It's really good to see you guys. Regardless of what I have to bring uh, from the pulpit sometimes, I, I love being with you guys. So I don't relish standing here. Uh, but I love being with you in general, but especially out there and just fellowshipping, and it's good. All right. Well, we, we did leave off in Matthew 19 discussing marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, and as you remember, it started with the, a certain sect among the Pharisees coming to Jesus. They were trying to, to trap him as usual. And this was the issue they brought to him. And you remember that this group came to him and said, can, uh, can a man divorce his wife for any old reason? And there was one camp that said, yes, for just about any old reason. If the neighbors can hear her talking, uh, she talks too loud, and so you can uh, you know, get rid of her and get a new one that is quiet. Uh, if she burnt the food, that was grounds for divorce. Um, but then the other uh, you know, school among the Pharisees said, No, uh, no, but only for uh, moral indecencies. And uh, and of course, Jesus chimed in uh, and said that except for uh, fornication, where one or the other spouse uh, is engaged sexually with someone outside the marriage, that is the only exception for divorce. Uh, But then again, divorce is not required in such instances, but it is permissible. You have biblical grounds for it. And then the implication from the text is that if someone acquires uh, a divorce having biblical grounds, uh, they also have biblical grounds for remarriage as long as they marry somebody uh, that is a believer. And of course, we went to 1 Corinthians 7 to explore uh, more of that theology. So if you have questions about any of that and you weren't here for those things, you can go back and, and listen. Now, I have been getting texts from various people saying that the YouTube... Uh, and Vimeo has been cutting out. So if, if that's happening, uh, we learned, it is happening, that it's actually YouTube's fault, uh, not ours. So, good. Well, I had thought that we said something that God has flagged, and we have been flagged on YouTube before, praise God, uh, and, uh, but it wasn't. It was just they had some issue. So if you can't, uh, and the benefit is, you don't have to look at me preaching. You can just listen to the audio. Isn't that sweet? So it's still on the audio. And do we do podcast? Yeah. I don't even know what a podcast is. So people ask me, I'm like, I don't know what the tech guys do, but I know that you can go to the website and you can click if you want to, if you haven't been here and you want to catch up. Fair enough? Oh, okay. And then so Jesus concludes this way. And then, of course, the, the boys chime in. And they say, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That is, if we can only dump her for fornication, then it's just best not to get married. So Jesus has a lot of work to do with these guys, and the cross is right around the corner. Okay, so if, if, if you think that you haven't quite arrived, neither had the disciples, and they had been sitting at his feet for t- three years. So there's always room for growth. So, what did Jesus say in response to that? So, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 19, 11, and 12. But he said to them, please listen to the language, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your word. This uh, text is for a population within the family of God, and uh, it it is important that the whole family understands what you've said about this, that uh, you and... The truth passed on to the apostles would clarify it and remove any confusion. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to not just explore it, but understand it, and, um, and that even us um, would be encouraged by it. So thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So certainly this will be, you know, fitted in one of the stranger categories of the things I've preached, uh, but... Of course, Jesus thought it was necessary to include in the text. Uh, it is inspired as much as anything else in the Word of God, so it's necessary to mention it. So here we go. Amen? Okay, so in response to them that, you know, if, if fornication is the only justifiable reason to divorce, they said, it's just better not to marry. And, and Jesus humored them so much. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been Given. Now, for clarity, to accept a saying, as Jesus is saying here, means to receive in agreement, to acknowledge its truth, to consent to the fact. And to give here means to offer, to bestow, or to grant. So only those who can receive it for themselves can accept it. I cannot. It was not given to me. Right, Shandy? I cannot accept it. But there may be somebody that can. All cannot accept this statement of truth that Jesus is talking about because it is not given, okay? Or really even offered to all. It's not for everyone, but only to a select group, okay? And by the way, Jesus states this, it's implied that even though it has been given or offered, it can, only, it can be declined, which then dwindles the number to an even smaller population. So Jesus is addressing a very unique, it's going out to everyone, it's part of the word of God, but it's for a very unique population, which turns out to be an exception to a rule. In the words of Jesus, this isn't something that someone asks for. Man isn't said to be the one that initiates this. It's God who initiates it. And a man either receives it or he does not. Also, that this is something given by God to a select group of people suggests that it's a calling as well as a gifting. This is something that God has granted to a small population for his glory. What is this thing? He says, for there are eunuchs plural, <clears throat> who were born thus for, from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And again, he who is Able to accept this, let him accept it. So what is a eunuch? What is a eunuch? Well, we understand a eunuch to be a man who has been emasculated. Now, there's so little said about eunuchs in the scriptures that there's some things I just can't say because the text isn't clear. But every, every time it's mentioned specifically, it's masculine. So the question is, can a woman be a eunuch? In, in any of the senses that it's talked about here. Of course, in the ancient world, a woman couldn't be a eunuch, right, in this sense. Okay? It was a man who had been emasculated. But the Greek word itself is a compound word that means to be alone in bed, to have a bed to one's self. That's interesting, huh? To be in bed alone. Why would one be in bed alone? Well, obviously, they're eunuchs, but Jesus says there's at least three different kinds. Those who were born impotent, they do not have the ability to procreate because they were born that way. Those who were emasculated uh, mechanically or surgically for whatever reason, probably for uh, typically in the ancient world for a particular service to a king, uh, albeit involuntary. Uh, and there are those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So the first two categories uh, of course, are not eunuchs by their own choice. One was born that way. The other was forced to become a eunuch uh, by way of cruelty or torture or that he might oversee a king's harem. Okay? Uh, these, both of these kinds of eunuchs are, are tragic. The first occurs because of Adam's sin. He brought sin, death, pain, disease into the world and some people, therefore, are born this way. It's no fault of their own. And others are made eunuchs by the wickedness of men who impose it on them for ungodly and selfish reasons. And when we research the the history of those two kinds of eunuchs, it's a sad one, both in the the fact that they cannot procreate, uh, but also even in the Old Covenant, a eunuch uh, that was a Levite or within the tribe of Aaron, they could not approach the altar for worship or service. It was off-limits to them, Leviticus 21.20. Well, thankfully, in Isaiah 56, uh, where it predicts a change in the covenant, uh, of course, uh, it's fulfilled in the new covenant, eunuchs have full and free access to God without limitation. Praise God. They can be anything uh, in the kingdom of God. But the first two categories, of course, aren't what really interest us this morning. It's the last, the one that could potentially apply to someone in Jesus' audience, or even here this morning... The last kind of eunuch is so by their own choice, and Jesus says, for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, they have chosen, they've chosen rather, to have their bed to themselves for the cause of Christ because, this is important, Christ has gifted them accordingly. He's gifted them accordingly. It's, this is not simply a single person who has not yet married. So, single people that are in transition, hoping for a spouse, they can't say, Well, I'm a eunuch for now. That's not really what that means, okay? Maybe we understand what they're saying, but they're not a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. It's someone who's consciously committed to this by invitation of God. Remember, man does not initiate this. God does. This sort of eunuch, by the way, does not voluntarily emasculate themselves in order to become a eunuch, but willingly live a life of celibacy in order to advance the interests of the kingdom of heaven. They've chosen to be single, not for selfish reasons, not because they're homosexual and a Christian and want to be absent absent of all that, abstain from sin. It's not to be more spiritual, as some would think, that they're like the the special forces of Christianity. History has proven otherwise. It's not for any other reason than to serve Christ in a state of celibacy. Now, how many of those who have professed Christ are... uh, are permitted to live a life not for the glory of God. Christianity knows no such person, right? We should all serve Christ, the cause of his kingdom, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're a eunuch. But a true eunuch is one who has chosen to live their life without the addition of a spouse. Another thing is, understand, Jesus is not encouraging people to become eunuchs, neither is he discouraging it. He's not encouraging, he's not discouraging. This is for those to whom God would grant This special grace to live celibate for the kingdom. It's for the one to whom it's given. The man who can accept it. Another thing that's important is this is not to be decided on independently because you haven't been able to find a mate when you truly want one. So you're 30 and you don't have a mate. Maybe you're 40 or older. Um, You don't get to say, I'm a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. That's not how this works in the language of Jesus. It's not to be adopted because you've become frustrated in your pursuit. It has to be offered and it has to resonate with someone's spirit and their heart for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. Now, it's really no different, of course all callings have a difference, but uh, different than, it's not different than any other calling of God that requires gifting. You know, not everyone is gifted and called to be a pastor. How many of you say amen to that, okay? Uh, it's, it's not a desire that is independent of God's gift and call. It actually depends on it. When, uh, the scriptures say when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to man. He gave some, some, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Ephesians 4 8 and 11 gave some. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12 29, Paul says, uh, Not all are apostles, are they? Now, in the Greek, whenever a question is asked in the negative, the answer is always no. And so, kind of, it kinda can be unclear in the English translation, but the, the the Greek phrase begins with not. Not all are apostles, are they? No, not all are prophets, not all are teachers, okay? This must be according to God's choosing and his, his gifting for the edification of the church. It's not for us to decide. Now, we can perhaps decline. I guess, I suppose, I could say, no, I don't want to be a pastor. I believe that God would make me miserable, uh, by that decision, uh, because I don't think we get to um, you know, argue with the sovereign king of the universe. Uh, I think he'll get his way eventually. Uh, I prefer just to cooperate. Amen. And uh, it is my pleasure too. Uh, I, I don't like standing up here, but that's, that's part of it. So there we go. Okay. But no one wakes up and says, you know what? I'm a eunuch for the kingdom of God. I would never wake up that way. No one does this without gifting, without calling. If someone decides for themselves to be a eunuch, when God is not granted his grace for it, they will only put a stumbling block in front of themselves. They'll hurt themselves, and, and very potentially other people. Okay? The success of celibacy, just like any other gifting and calling of God, it depends on Christ, not on somebody's will. It just doesn't. And the history of those who have claimed to be celibates Proven to be, has proven to be a sad one. A sad one. Okay. Early in the history of the church, you know, celibacy was popularized and it was elevated as you know the, the superior form of Christianity. It was the, the greatest station of life. But the history of the church proves otherwise. Some examples. The early theologian and a monk, because they were all monks at the time, because I mean that was that was the pinnacle of spirituality. His name was Origen. And Origen uh, struggled with lust. He learned that he wasn't uh, a eunuch for the kingdom of God, but that didn't occur to him. So, uh, and Origen was a very strange guy to begin with. When he interpreted the scriptures, he hardly interpreted anything literal. It was all allegorical and and spiritualized. Until he came to Jesus' words that said, if your eye causes you to sin or your hand, he says, cut it off. So what he did was he emasculated himself. To curve his lust. But it turns out that if you're emasculated after puberty, it doesn't help. So he went through all of that only to discover that it did not curve his lust. He couldn't procreate, but he was still lusting after the opposite sex. So sad. At one point, uh, the church had decided that because, you know, celibates are truly celibate, there would be no harm in having like co ed monasteries. The monks and the nuns could live together in the same compound and everything would be fine. And just a short time after they began to cohabit, I'd say about nine months, a famous theologian, my favorite theologian in, in the earliest part of the history, John Christostom. Christostom means golden mouth. He was the first real expositor of the church. And he was very sarcastic. He said, it's funny, since the cohabitation of monks and nuns, our holy sisters have become holy mothers. Fascinating. Fornicating celibates, a contradiction in terms, yeah. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church, you know, everywhere on the planet, this version of celibacy has proven to be unbiblical and to be dangerous, dangerous. And you may not be familiar with some of this history. I, I believe that it's worth saying. Uh, throughout the history of the Catholic Church, nuns have been impregnated often. And one of the sad truths about the Catholic Church, and you're welcome to go to Peru with us, And you can see the fornication chambers. That is where they would place a nun when she became pregnant, almost exclusively by priests. But what a black eye to the church. So we hide them, and then she's there until she delivers the baby. But then what with the baby? They would kill them. The the church has practiced infanticide for centuries, and it is ironic that they are so pro-life today. Nuns are molested and raped by priests. They have been for centuries. And as you know, the headlines are all over Europe and America, South America, the children are molested. In France, a couple of years ago, uh, over 12,000 people came forward and uh, had talked about uh, them being molested. And then we had it in all over the East Coast and said, obviously, these people did not have the grace of God for such a calling. A stumbling block was placed in their path and horrific things resulted. And, and you know, shame on the church for, for elevating celibacy to what Scripture does not teach. You know, Paul He saw this coming and said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So what are these doctrines of demons that the Holy Spirit set on the horizon? It's this, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused, especially bacon, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That is a definitive statement on both of those issues. Forbidding to marry and commanding people to abstain from certain foods. It's, it's demonic. Two things that demons teach that some in the church have fallen for and enforced. You know, if, if a demon, you know, teaches someone to abstain from marriage, it is for the destruction of that person and for others, as we've seen in the history of the Catholic Church. Now, I don't agree with much of what the Catholic Church believes, especially their doctrine of salvation. You cannot be saved according to the Catholic Catechism. But one of the most practical things that they could do is is to allow their priests to be married. So these German school of priests that are pushing for this, uh, I'm all for it. Not because I think it'll save anybody, you know, and get them into heaven, but it'll spare people of countless tragedies. They will be spared from a life of hidden lust. Spare countless nuns and children from just the horrors of sexual abuse. And then also, because Paul mentions it in the text here, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, Here's my counsel to you. Stay away from anyone who tells you that the new covenant teaches that there are any dietary restrictions for a Christian. It's a doctrine of demons, okay? The kingdom of God, as Paul says in Romans 14, 17, it's not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There are no moral implications in what you eat. There may be some moral implications in how much you eat, but there's nothing sinful or spiritual. There's no moral implications in the context of food, okay? So eat your shellfish. I would prescribe bacon. <laughs> Alright, back to eunuchs So the interesting thing is that We only have one uh, eunuch really One example in scripture of a person Who made themselves a eunuch for the kingdom There may have been others I mean, Barnabas may have been Okay, Timothy may have been Titus, Silas, some of these other guys They may have been But there's only one person that we know Was a eunuch for the kingdom Okay, That person is the apostle Paul and interestingly enough, you know, Paul may have been married at one time. Okay? He was a Pharisee, and we believe there's indications that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. Well, according to, to, to Jewish tradition, you could not be on the Sanhedrin unless you were married. So it's very possible that he was married, but when he converted to Christ, that the father took her away from him, and then he was left in this particular state. But he was celibate. And his state is mentioned by him in 1 Corinthians 7, which, interesting enough, it's the only other place that we can turn to explore celibacy or someone who has made themselves a eunuch in this particular way. So Paul says, and pay attention to language, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, good thing, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own, what, gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, Paul says here in this context that he wished all men were like him, that is, a eunuch for the kingdom. Now, he can't forbid marriage. Why? It would be a doctrine of demons. It would be contrary to God's original intent for man, as we see in Genesis 1 through 2. And even according to Paul, this is a concession, it's not a command. It's for those to whom it resonates because God has granted the gift of celibacy to them, as he did to Paul, okay? But even Paul's wish for others to be like him, it's found in a very particular context. Speaking again about this same issue, he says, I suppose, that's, that's my opinion, therefore that it's, it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So something was going on in Corinth that Paul refers to as distressful, distressful. And it's because of this distressful state of affairs, whatever that may be, he says, I suppose that this is good, celibacy, because of the current crisis in Corinth. Celibacy is preferred in my opinion. Now, the word man there is pretty generic, so Paul could be speaking to both genders, perhaps. Now, Paul's perspective on celibacy... And his wish that everyone else was unmarried, it's stated in the context of this problem that is in Corinth itself. If all the believers in Corinth were unmarried, as Paul was unmarried, their experience would not be as distressing. This crisis in Corinth was directly affecting the the believers that were there. Now, most scholars believe that the church in Corinth was being persecuted for the faith. Paul uses this word distress in other places to speak of persecution. Persecution because of the faith. So it's likely that that's his thought here. Now, imagine living in a community where you're the extreme minority and you are extremely hated because of what you believe. That's the case. How uneasy would you be every time your wife left the house to go shopping at the open market or you had to leave her home alone or your husband went to work Would would you ever hear from him again? Would they be beaten, imprisoned? Would they come home? Would they be killed? So Paul may be saying, I wish you were like me. I don't have a wife sitting at home wondering if I'm coming home or if I'm suffering persecution. I don't have to worry about my wife being injured when she's home alone or when she's at the marketplace. This current distress is less distressing for me because I'm single. Now there's another view that states that there may have been a famine, a severe famine in Greece that was, of course, causing a severe shortage of food, especially for the poor. Paul may have alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 11:21 21, when he said that the poor were coming to the church hungry, hungry. If that is the case, Paul would be saying that during this time, when it's difficult enough just to feed yourself, it would be best to remain single. Whatever the distress was, it it influenced Paul's current opinion and the counsel that he passed on to the Corinthian people. It's also noteworthy that Paul did not say this to any other church. So there's a good argument there that his opinion was confined to Corinth because of the circumstances there. Do circumstances change our counsel and our opinion? Absolutely. For example, you know, if it was hailing outside and the stones, the hailstones were the size of a pea, I probably wouldn't warn you about it. And I wouldn't be concerned if my family was out in it. My kids would probably love it. But if they were the size of golf balls or softballs, because I love you, I would counsel you to stay inside. And it would be distressing if I thought my wife and children were out in it. How many of you guys have been in a hellstorm where the stones are large? Distressing or are you complete ease? My brother was in... Uh, um, I don't know, some other state. I can't remember where he was. Where was he? Where was he, Shandy? Nebraska. And he walked into a Burger King and he heard something thump on the roof. And he did this and then he looked outside and people were running everywhere. Well, he was a roofer and uh, the insurance claims he made a lot of money in Nebraska. It destroyed cars, windshields, roofs, crops, everything. You know, it could kill you. Yeah. So if that was the situation out here, if I wasn't married, didn't have any children, the thought would never cross my mind. I'd be concerned about others, but I wouldn't prioritize a wife and children that I didn't have. So being single under the current crisis in Corinth would be best in Paul's opinion, but that opinion wasn't passed on to other churches. It's just completely silent. Now, to conclude this whole matter, because you are so interested I think it's important to say some things concerning singleness versus making yourself a eunuch for the kingdom of God. They're similar, but they're not the same. Of course, they're both single. But the sense of Jesus' words is that one is permanently in that state, while the other is only temporarily, or at least that's their hope. Both should exercise self-control and and live sexually pure. It seems, though, that for the eunuch, God has granted this special grace— to not be tempted or as tempted, okay? Also, both should live for the glory of God. They should both be advancing the interests of the kingdom. But one is called to do it without a mate, while the other is available to do it with a mate. Amen? Those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom are rare and they're resolute in their state, while single people are common and they're in a state of transition. One is an exception to the divine will that man be married and have children, while the other fits into the common will of God according to his design. Generally speaking, it will never be good for a man to be alone. God designed us to be in relationship to our spouse. That is what God says is very good. But God has planted something in the heart, and I have no idea what it is, in a a special group of people, a gifting, a calling, to serve him in this state of singleness. Marriage isn't something that concerns them. Now, having all said all that, I'm not sure that I've ever met someone with the gift of celibacy. I'm not sure that I have. I know plenty of people who are single and celibate and others who are single and don't want to be married. But a eunuch for the kingdom, I'm not sure I know one. I've known a lot of people that have told me that they are or have the gift of celibacy, but they've all married since. So when people have told me that, I go, okay. There are some among us who are currently single, but as we've said, that doesn't make them a eunuch. That makes them single. And when it comes to this, I don't think time will necessarily tell if someone has the gift of celibacy. Just because someone remains celibate their their whole life or single their whole life does not mean they're a eunuch for the kingdom. Single people all the time spend their days serving themselves rather than the kingdom of God. Others are single their whole life because they never found a mate, not because they have the gift. Many people are single their whole life just for a host of reasons other than being a eunuch for the kingdom of God. And what we have to be careful of and not to make the mistake of the early church is to elevate this state above any other state. Eunuchs, single people, married people, they don't hold different statuses before God. One is not more spiritual than the other. Eunuchs, for example, are not somehow a, you know, a superior expression of spirituality because they're not married and because they don't have a desire for it. They're not more spiritual because they don't have the distraction of a spouse and can serve the interests of the kingdom alone. You see, a married couple that is equally invested in the kingdom, they could potentially accomplish more together than the eunuch. Potentially. Who's to say? I think that's up to a sovereign God, isn't it? Yeah. A married couple that isn't fully committed, of course, they're in a sad state of affairs. But Paul, you know, I mean, could you imagine ladies being married to Paul? Everywhere you go, he gets dragged into the street and beaten. That every time he gets on a boat, it wrecks. He goes into a synagogue, and and they hated him so bad. The law, you know, in in the law of Moses, the limit to to beating, to whipping someone, 40. That's it. If they needed more than 40 stripes, they were deserving of death. So what they did with Paul is they, they whipped him 39 times and they started back at zero. And they did it three times. I think it's three times. That's how much they hated him. But could you imagine? Could you imagine what would go through Paul's heart every time that happened? What, what's my wife thinking? What, what, what's going on with my children? That would be distressing. Paul was customized for something very special. And I think that every woman was thankfully not married to him. Okay, That would be Horrifying for both, for both. You know, and that makes me just, my heart break for these uh, missionaries in in North Africa. I believe there's 12 now. And many of them have been there since January, February. Families haven't heard from them. I guess one of them has now. But they don't know where they are. They don't know if they're alive or they're dead. They don't know if they're suffering greatly in that condition. It's crazy. Imagine just the heartache. Think about the hostages in in, um, the Strip right now, the families. It's horrifying. So yeah, there are instances where singleness would be preferable. Now, to be honest, you know, when it comes to um, you know, pastoral ministry, I'm not so concerned with those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom because they're not in limbo. They're not desiring a spouse or even concerned about it. And you know, God has granted them the grace to be that way. As a pastor, I'm concerned about our single people, especially those who are at age to marry and desire a spouse. You know, I pray that God would grant them in this, this current place that they're at, you know, contentment and fulfillment in Christ, and he would grant them the grace to remain pure and, and to remain qualified for marriage and use their time wisely for the kingdom of God, which I think is the most attractive thing for a spouse that is godly. That's, that's attractiveness in a godly way you know, singles often struggle with loneliness and, and a sense of belonging. They, they can feel unwelcome and awkward around couples and families. So I think we need to be conscious of that reality. We should do all that we can to make them feel welcome and wanted without making them feel ashamed or somehow like a, a second-class citizen in the, in the family of God because they're not married. Of course, because we do elevate family and children here, don't we? As we ought, because it's It's all through the the scriptures, all through the epistles. It's in the design and mind of God in Genesis 1 and 2. It's everywhere. But we want to love people. We should include and encourage them in the state that God currently has them. All of us should live for his glory in the state that we find ourselves, using the gifts that he's given us for the edification of others. So, with this strange sermon, let me conclude with 1 Peter 4. If you would, please stand I'll end with this, and then we'll pray. Um, it could be that some of you have questions, um, concerns. I, I want to do my best to serve anybody in all of this. First Peter 4, 7, to the end of the section there. I love this. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Because we believe that you direct a man's course, and of course we have decisions to make, but you're sovereign and and you're good. You've done things for your own purpose and your glory. Lord, so I pray that whatever state that you have us in, Lord, that our lives would be yielded, committed to the interests of your kingdom. And Lord, that everything that you've given us would be used for the edification of those around us. And Lord, when it comes to this whole doctrine that we've looked at. Lord, we want to minister. Lord, if you've called someone to celibacy among us, we need to accept it and receive it and uh, allow them to serve for your glory. And Lord, those who are in between in this transitional period of their life called singleness, we pray that you would be with those people and, and that you'd help them by your grace to use their time wisely to find fulfillment in you as they wait and look and and all of that. And that, Lord, no matter what, you would supply all of their needs. So, Lord, we thank you that no matter what state we're in, you are faithful. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.